Amen. Well, we're going through the, the, the Gospel of John together as a church. We're going through it bit by bit. Uh, we've got to this chapter 17. This chapter 17 comes after what we could describe as the best sermon ever preached. Jesus has that time speaking to his disciples, preparing for them for when he leaves. And then he finishes his sermon, he summarizes it, and then he comes back to his disciples and he is now praying. He's praying to God. He's praying for three different things, as we've seen. We've divided this prayer into three main areas. Verses 1 to 5, which we've looked at, we see that Jesus is praying for himself. Verses 6 to 19, the ones that we've just read, Jesus is praying particularly for his apostles, the disciples then that he was there with, who are listening in on this prayer. And then verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for all uh, the believers. And so we are continuing in this chapter. We're continuing in verses uh, 6 to 19. When Jesus prayed for himself in those first five verses, we saw that it wasn't a selfish, self-centered prayer, but Jesus was praying that he would be glorified so that God would be glorified. And in many ways, when we came out of that, that sermon from those first five verses, we, we, we had this main point ringing in our ears that the chief end of Jesus is to glorify the Father. And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think it would be helpful if we have those up on, on the screen there so that you can just see them as we go through them. So I want to summarize this quickly as, as we go through that. So we saw that the chief end of Jesus is to glorify the Father and the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so the question is, when you pray, are you praying for yourself? Or are you praying for the glory of God? You see, our desires and our supplications and our prayers must be in line with us personally glorifying God. But last week we then moved on to the next section of this and we were looking at the section which uh, we, we already said is Jesus praying for his apostles. And before we looked at the, the requests that are being made, which that's what we're looking at today and you had a little taste of that with the children's talk, we, we looked at the marks of a true Christian and we saw that a true Christian or a true disciple or a true apostle, a true disciple is given to Jesus by the Father. A true disciple has the Father revealed to them by Jesus. A true disciple believes and keeps Jesus' teaching. A true disciple is kept by Jesus. A true disciple is set apart by Jesus and a true disciple glorifies Jesus and therefore glorifies God. 
And when we looked at these six marks, we actually realized that five of them are what Christ does for us. And only one of them is what we do in response. We thought of it last week as trusting and obeying. We believe and keep Jesus's teaching. Now, that doesn't lessen our responsibility to trust and obey because those other five marks are what Jesus does. But we have to remember that it's because what Jesus has done, it is possible for us to believe and keep Jesus's teaching. It's because we've been given to Jesus by the Father that we can trust and obey. It's because the Father's been revealed to us through Jesus that we can trust and obey. We can trust and obey because we are kept by Jesus. We can trust and obey because we've been set apart by Jesus. We can glorify Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is the marks of a true disciple. But now we're going to, to move on and we're going to move and, and look at the requests that Jesus made for his disciples. And we have to remember the context. The context is that Jesus is speaking to God the Father. Jesus, in speaking to God the Father, firstly brings requests about himself to glorify God. And then he's speaking to the Father and he's making requests for the disciples, the 11 that were around him at that moment. And so that's why we say that these requests were particularly for those 11 disciples. We also can realise that these requests are in some ways a general request for all true disciples. Now our circumstances are quite different. But in many ways what Jesus was asking for those disciples then are the very things that we need now in our lives. And so First and foremost, we need to see and understand what this was meaning for the disciples that Jesus was praying for then. And then we can apply it to what it means to us uh, now. This prayer, it gives us an insight into the heart of Jesus. I don't know if you've found that, but if you are if you come along to prayer meetings, if you visit another church and you go to their prayer time and you may hear someone praying and even though you've never really met this person before, don't really know this person, you, you, you feel knitted together with that person. Your, your heart goes out to them because you, you hear something of their heart in their prayer. You, 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 you realise something about themselves and their walk with God from their prayer. And this prayer gives us a real insight to the heart of Jesus. And to help us understand this, to help us get, get, our, get our minds around what's going on here, we need to see the context again. And the context is this. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. And this isn't just leave his disciples while they go off to university. This is not just leave his disciples for when they're going on, on a vacation or a holiday. 
This is not because they're just going to move to another part of the island so you can see them from time to time. This was a serious leaving. Jesus was leaving his disciples in this world and he was going to go to be with the Father. And so if you were going to be leaving your family and your friends, say for example you had the opportunity to to emigrate, to move to Australia, and you were leaving all your Cyprus friends and family, all your friends and family from your home, and you were going, what would you be praying for them? What would you be praying for yourself? And for many of us, our concern, we would pray for safety. We would pray for provision. We would pray for the very practical matters in life. We'd be asking that we would have journeying mercies. We'd be asking that they would be kept safe here. Perhaps we'd have worries about their situation and perhaps worries about their provision. And we'd be praying for that. But here we see Jesus with a very, very different list of requests and supplications for his disciples. One of the commentators, uh, Don Carson, said it like this. I just wanted to quote him straight because I think it's so helpful. The spiritual dimension of this prayer of Jesus consists, is constant and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our families, and even our games, more than we do about the dangers of the evil one. We could say it like this, if you like. What you pray for tells you what's important in your life. What you pray for tells you what's important to you. Maybe you need a moment to think about that. Think about the last time you were seriously praying. What was it you were praying about? What is on your prayer list? What is on your prayer diary? What is it you are bringing to God in prayer? Because what you are praying about tells you what's important. And is that important thing really what is important? For Jesus in this prayer, across this chapter, firstly of first importance to him is God's glory. And we've seen that, and we've underlined it, and we will continue to underline it. Jesus is all about God being glorified. Jesus prays that he will be glorified, not for his own glory, but so that God, the Father, will be glorified. He wants his disciples to know a sense of this glorification. Why? Because he wants God, the Father, to be glorified. And then he prays for the disciples. God's glory, and then for disciples. Now we know later in the evening he goes on to pray for himself and there's nothing wrong about praying for ourselves and it's right and it's proper. But when we pray for ourselves, when we pray for others, 
What are we praying for? Are we praying for God's glory? Or are we praying for a shopping list of provision and safety and health and those kinds of things? Now we can praise God that we can pray for those things, but we need to be careful about our emphasis. And we need to see things in the light of how Jesus has set uh, a pattern and example. That there are four uh, main petitions, main requests uh, in this. I just want to quickly run through them, and I'll run through them with the children. And I'm, if the children are listening, which I know they are, I'm sure that if I ask them, they'll be able to tell me straight away what they were. The first one began with P. Yeah, that's it, protection. The second one began with U. Yeah, unity. The third one, the children jumping up, jumping for joy, joy. And the last one was a, a harder word, holiness. A harder word for us to understand. Now, God willing, today we're just going to be looking at the first two, protection and unity. And then next week uh, we will be, with God's help, looking at, or next, not sure about next week, but next time I'm preaching, looking at uh, joy and uh, holiness. So, protection. The heart of prayer, protection. We're looking particularly here at verses 11 to 12 uh, and uh, 15. Now, there are two main areas of protection that Jesus prayed for for his disciples. They're connected, for sure, but I want to take them as, as two separate uh, prayer items, if you like. So they're praying, he's praying for protection, and firstly he sees he wants them to be protected from the world. So protection from the world. Verse 11 reads like this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given them. The danger is the world. Jesus is leaving the world. Yes, he's leaving the, the physical realm of this world, but what he's actually meaning is, is more than the world just as uh, a location. This world is, uh, as we saw last week, and as we often see, a fallen place that's full of sin and temptation. It's a place that's full of the effects of sin and temptation. It's a hurting place. It's, it's a frightening place. It's a, it's a sad place. It's a place where God isn't naturally glorified or honoured. It's a place where God is pushed out. Jesus is going to be with the Father in glory. That's what he's about. That's where he is going. But the disciples are still going to be in this world. They're still going to be uh, contending with all the challenges that this world brings. And, and part of the discourse and part of the sermon that Jesus brought to his disciples just before this prayer was outlining that they would have tribulations, that they would be persecuted, that they would be hated. He mentions it in this prayer, doesn't he? In verse 14, he says, the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so these disciples are being left in the world. And this world hates them. 
And this world hates them because they are the opposite of this world. Jesus' salvation in their hearts and their lives has transformed them from being people of this world and the flesh and the devil to people that are out of this world, people who are God's children, people who are part of God's family. And Jesus had spent the last uh, three and a half years keeping them. We saw that last week, didn't we? A mark of a true disciple is Jesus keeps them. And Jesus was keeping his disciples. There's all manner of examples of what Jesus did for them. But when they were frightened, he comforted them. When they were in the storm, he, he calmed the storm. He answered their questions. He taught them. He provided for them. And now he was about to leave them. And he's about to leave them in this world which was against them, which is against them. And how are they going to cope? How are they going to cope in that situation? And Jesus, as he's leaving them, is handing them over to the care of the Father. Jesus says to God the Father, Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Now we need to be careful here. Because this scripture can be used to to bring about a false doctrine that just the, the name of God has special powers. And we need to be kept in God's special name. And we say God's name over situations. And we speak God's name over situations. And he'll keep them safe. That is not what God's word is saying. That's superstitious mumbo jumbo. And it's not what this is about. So we need to dig in and work out what is this about. What is Jesus asking for when he says, keep them in your name? Just the other day, uh, I met with the brother of the guy that I'm visiting uh, in prison. And the brother was explained to me very understandably how the brother in prison had let down the family name. Let down the family name. This is a context. Jesus has paid the price of the sins of his people. Jesus has brought those disciples and brought them into God's family. They're God's children. They're adopted. And as being adopted into God's family, Jesus wants these children to walk worthy of the family name. He doesn't want them to to be a discredit to the family name. I remember uh, my my school days way back in England and the school I went to, we had a uniform and we had a blazer. And on our blazer, we had a badge of the school and a tie. And everyone, when we walked in the street, knew that we were from that school. And sometimes some children, some youngsters, some youth would get themselves in trouble outside of school. And they would be identified by their uniform. And the shame would come back on the school because they brought shame to the uniform. 
This is a kind of context we're looking at here. Jesus realizes that his disciples bear God's name. And he wants them to walk worthy of God's name. And he realizes that they need to be kept. Jesus wants God the Father to keep the disciples loyal to himself. Or in other words, he wants to keep them in full adherence to God's character. See, Jesus realized, Jesus knows the power of temptation. He's been through temptation. He was being tempted all the time. He never sinned, but he was being tempted. And he knew the temptation. And he knew that the the draw of the world would want to bring the disciples and take the disciples away from the character of God. He knew that the world would be sucking them further and further away from the, the character of God, the likeness of God, doing things God's way. You see, the character of this world is self-seeking. The character of this world is pride. The character of this world is self-gratification, selfishness, or if you like, the me, me, me monster. It's mine. I want it. I will have it. I will enjoy it. It's me. I'm the most important person. The character of this world is fallen. The character of this world is sin-loving. The character and the nature of this sinful world is the exact opposite of God. And Jesus realizes that this is where he is leaving his disciples and they will come under intense temptation to to follow the, 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 the lusts of the flesh, to go after the eyes and the pride of man, to do their own thing. And they're vulnerable. And Jesus is praying that God will keep his disciples in that environment. They are not of this world. They're out of this world. And and you see, what is motivating Jesus in this request is the fact that he has this unique special relationship with his disciples The Father, as we read in verse 11, has given these disciples to Jesus. They're his. Jesus wants his disciples to glorify the Father. And the Father is not glorified when people run off in sin. The Father is not glorified when Christians and God's people and disciples go the opposite way. It drags his name through the dirt. It dishonors him. It discredits him. And Jesus knows that the massive temptation that people in this world are under. And so he's praying for his disciples and asking God to keep them. He wants his disciples to be kept out of this world when they are living in this world. That sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? But it doesn't mean physically out of this world, but living a God-centered, God-honoring, God-focused life in this world. And this can put huge stress and strains upon a person. It's not easy to live opposite to what the world is doing. It's not easy to, to walk... in in the way that God wants you to when the rest of the world is walking in the opposite direction. 
you may have seen that the symbol of the Christian being the fish, that the ichthos, the fish. And, and I saw on someone's T-shirt a whole load of fishes swimming in one direction and then one ichthos fish swimming in the opposite direction. That's what it can be like for us as believers and Christians. That's what it can be like for those disciples. Just 11 of them, and it seemed like the whole world was against them. And, and the stresses and strains of Christian life and Christian service is not unknown for disciples to want to be taken out of the world. They think, this is not my home, this is not my place, I don't want to be here anywhere anymore. It's an occupational hazard, if you like, because things get so difficult and things get so hard. And when we read the psalmist psalms, we realize that the problems and the challenges that he had, and it just almost feels as though he just wants to have had enough. Take me home, God. And maybe you feel like that at times. The Christian life is just too difficult. The opposition you get from your friends and family is too hard. You want to make a way for yourself, but you realize that you're not going to compromise. You're not going to go that way. And it makes life hard. And there's some of you here who, 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 yes, you could probably make big money doing Yahoo and scamming. But you're working 15 times as hard and earning 15 times less, if not more. And it's tough. But you're doing what's righteous. And in doing what's righteous, it, it just sometimes gets too much. And Moses, we read an example of Moses. What a great name. What a man of God. A man who talked with God like a friend. And in Numbers 11, in verse 15, it says, If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find no favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. He was fed up to the point that he wanted taking out of the world. Well, there's Elijah, and he's been on Mount Carmel, and he's brought the fire of God down from heaven, and the prophets of Baal have been smashed, and God's name has been raised on high. And he gets frightened, and he runs away from Jezebel. And in this, he goes, and we pick his, his situation up in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, and he's running away from Jezebel, and he went about a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O oh Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And Jonah, after preaching and being probably one of the most successful evangelists and missionaries that ever was in the world, after going to Nineveh and seeing Nineveh repent and, and not get destroyed, and he's all upset, and then Jonah 4 verse 3 says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. It can be really tough as a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus knew that it was going to be really tough for his disciples as he left them. But he doesn't want his disciples to be taken out of this world. That's not what he wants. 
That will happen one day. One day we will all go to glory to be with Christ in heaven forever and ever and ever. But at this moment, it's not about us being taken away. It's not about the disciples being taken out and took up in rapture when Jesus transcended to heaven. What he wants for them is very clear. He has work for them to do now. And rather than giving them an opt-out clause, he asks the Father to keep them. I'm sure that in days going on from this, when the disciples were going through tough times, they remembered Jesus' words. The Father is keeping us because the Son asked. The Father is keeping us because the Son has prayed for us. So we see this protection from the world. And linked to that is, secondly, protection from the devil. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be taken out of the world. He doesn't want to give them an opt-out clause. He has a job for them to do. He has a plan for them to do. He wants them to be in the world. The world is their their temporary home, their temporary residence. We, we know this language only too well, don't we? We're here in Cyprus and we have to get a residency permit, don't we? A residency permit allows us to stay here in this island and we're thankful for it. We're thankful for the provision of it. But I'm sure you're all thankful for your own home passport. You're a citizen of Nigeria or Burundi or Namibia or Belgium or England or America or wherever it is. And that is where you are citizen of and that's where your earthly home is. Well, these disciples were temporary residents of this earth and they were citizens of heaven. They were out of this world, but they had a job to do now in this world. And Jesus doesn't want them taking out. He wants them to do his job, but he knows it's going to be difficult. He knows the world is against them, and he also knows that the evil one is against them. And Jesus wants the Father to keep them safe from the evil one. Now John's epistle gives us an insight to this. Uh, later, when John writes his, his letter, 1 John chapter 5 and verses 18 to 19, he says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God, he, he, sorry, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one, the devil, has real power on this earth. He's called, earlier on in this, in this book of the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world. We came across that phrase before and we realised that is the devil. That is the evil one. And because the disciples are Christ's, the devil is their enemy. And because they are Christ's, the devil knows that his attacking Jesus is pretty pointless. But he can go after the ones he loves. He can hurt those that are left here. He can hurt the disciples. And, and, and Jesus 
here prays that the Father will keep them. Note, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus didn't pray that the disciples would keep themselves. Now we have a responsibility in our own walk and the disciples had their own responsibility. But we see here Jesus explicitly asking God to keep the disciples. And if you go into Ephesians and the armour of God, how do we stand against the wiles of the evil one? In God's strength. We can't stand in our own strength. We need God to keep us. And, and, And Jesus knew that just a little while later, he would come back and he'd find his disciples sleeping. And he'd say to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows that we cannot keep ourselves. So he asks the Father to keep us. Jesus knows that these disciples couldn't keep themselves. But God can keep them. And God did keep them. And as we go on and look into the book of Acts, we see how God answers this prayer. And these men who are hiding away are made bold. And they come out and they preach the gospel. And they they, they go through persecution. And rather than running away, they ask for more boldness so that they can keep on at it. And when we look at church history, we see how God answers this prayer. And we can also look into our own lives and we can see how God is answering this prayer of Jesus. God will keep his disciples. Jesus, his son, has asked and prayed for that. So the question I want to ask is, what can we learn from this prayer request of Jesus? What what is the, the practical application to us. And what we have to remember is this, we will be hated by the world because we are not of the world. Friends, persecution, mockery, challenges will happen because we are not of the world. Now, not everyone, thankfully, is going to have to go through some of the extreme things that some of our brothers and sisters go through in other parts of the world. But just be aware, the world will hate you because you're not of the world. And what we need is God to keep us from this world and the ruler of this world, the evil one. Because we cannot keep ourselves. Friends, if you think you can keep yourself, you are like Peter saying, I will not deny you. With God's help. We won't deny him. But in our own strength, we've got no chance. And so we need to humble ourselves here and realise the, the great need we have in God strengthening us, God keeping us. And we have this right and this privilege to daily go to God and ask him to help us. The world and the flesh and the devil are real. The devil is like a roaring lion at times. The devil is like a crafty serpent at other times. He's like an angel of light at other times. How do we cope with this? We go to God 
and ask him to help us. And we delight in the sense that Jesus has prayed for us and asked the Father to do this. We cannot keep ourselves. Our prayer should be, Lord, keep us. You see, our salvation is an ongoing process. We need saving and being forgiven of our sins, but we need to be helped to continue on the walk. And Jesus will keep us because just like his disciples, we have been given to Jesus by the Father. And Jesus has asked the Father to keep those who have been given to him. There's such encouragement here for us. And so maybe you are thinking that this is just too much. This is too great. You just want to get off the merry-go-round. It's all too much for you. But be encouraged, friend. God is keeping you. And we can come to God in prayer and ask him to keep us. And we can expect him to keep us. And expect him to give us the grace and the mercy and the strength and the wisdom and the discernment that we need to be able to live to his glory. So Jesus prays for protection, protection from the world, protection from the devil. And then we also see he prays for unity. Verse 11 goes on that they may be one even as we are one. The may there he's talking about is the disciples, that they may be one even as we are one. And the one that he's speaking about there is God the Father and God the Son and and God the Holy Spirit. The the, the unity is an integral part of the Trinity. We we had the privilege a a few uh, weeks back at the seminars to think about the Trinity, didn't we? And, and the wonder of that, and just this this thought of the three in one, and, and the unity that's there before time began and forever and ever. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. And as Jesus just said earlier in this very same prayer in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, the sense of the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus wants his disciples to enjoy that same kind of unity that he enjoys with the Father. Unity is an essential part of the Christian life. Fellowship is is needed for, for spiritual health. And fellowship can't be had when there isn't unity. You see, the world will discourage you. That the world will want you and tempt you to sin. That the world hates you. The world is against you. The world is is a difficult, dark, hard place to live. And that's why you need to stick together with those that you are one with in Christ. Your church family is what you need. For those disciples, for many of them, that they'd left their families. That they'd left their homes. They'd left their situations. They were, they were by themselves. And an individual in those days by themselves was very vulnerable. You need to be part of something bigger. And they were part of God's family. And they were united together. And we see how this uniting worked in Acts. 
We see in Acts 2 that they shared and they looked out for each other. They, they fed each other. They cared for the, the widows and, and the orphans. And that's only going to happen when there is unity. Psalm 133 puts it like this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Ephesians 4 and verse 3 says, We should bear one another in love eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. 1 Peter 3 verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And Jesus, just a little bit earlier, said to his disciples, in chapter 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Unity needs both love and humility, neither of which are found in this world. And Jesus is praying that his disciples would have unity, that they would be like God the Father and God the Son, united together. Because Jesus knew that he was leaving them and they needed to be together. And we in this world, we're in uh, a lonely situation, aren't we? It's, it's, it's a challenging situation. And just as those disciples needed that unity, just as those disciples needed that unity when they were in the upper room, when they went back to wherever it was after Jesus had died and raised on the cross and they were there praying together, they needed that unity together. They needed that unity in, in the Acts of the Apostles. And, and we saw some of the times when that unity wasn't happening and what they had to do to, to work at it, to get at it. Jesus prays that his disciples will have unity. What can we learn from this prayer request of Jesus now? Well, one of the biggest challenges that a believer faces in this pandemic is not being able to fellowship together in person. And, and spinning off this is the danger of getting used to not having fellowship. And by not having fellowship and interacting with each other, unity can get broken. And we need that unity. Jesus prayed for that unity. So, so very practically, we as a church need to be doing all that we can to, to look out and care for each other. That's why we encourage you to message one another. That's why we encourage you to, to come along to the meetings in the week. I know it's online. I know it's not face-to-face, -face, but it's helping that's why, God willing, on Saturday uh, we have this idea of getting together. Pastor Phil's been very much encouraging these things to happen and also for new people to, to meet together. We want to have these opportunities and you need to take these opportunities because Jesus was praying for unity and we need to do all that we can to promote unity, particularly in this time when it is so difficult to have it. We need to make use of the Zoom and the small groups. 
Get yourself out on Thursday evening to be in the growth groups. Get yourself plugged into that. Make sure that you're doing all that you can to have fellowship. Unity is an essential part of our Christian life and it's a part that the devil is very active at trying to erode. And we need to do all that we can to, to nurture and protect this unity whilst praying that we know that ultimately it's something that only God can give. We have a responsibility for sure. We should be working at that. But at the same time, we should be praying and pleading that God would help us to be united, help us to be protected in this. And particularly in a church setting that we are like, we, we, we have people from all different tribes and nations. And, and we, we have challenges in the sense that we have sometimes people from different people groups that normally would be at odds with one another. And because of God's grace, we've been brought together. And the devil would want to sow disunity. But we need unity. We have to make sure we're not gossiping about people. We have to make sure we're esteeming each other's higher than ourselves. At the best of time, the unity as a family of God is under attack. But I think under this COVID time, it's so much easier for the evil one to operate. And good communications are essential and we need to ask the Lord to help us and to forgive us for when we haven't communicated as we should do and make sure that we are communicating as we ought to. And if someone pings a message to you, you don't have to respond immediately, but do respond to them. And if you're not sure of what they've said and it's come across in a funny way, don't take it in the wrong way, the funny way. Clarify it first and you'll probably find that it's nothing other than you being oversensitive. Don't let... The devil get in. It's much harder when we're not all together, but let's stand firm and let's pray that the Lord will help us. And let's delight in the fact that Jesus has already prayed that we would have unity. But there's other point here that I want to labour in closing, and it's very practical, and that is that unity comes out from being kept from the world. Unity comes out from being kept from the world. Now why do I say that? Well I, I say that because of, of the context of that verse 11 and, and, and the context of what's been said and, and what's, what's going on here. We, we, we have Jesus and he says, uh, I am no longer in the world but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That keep, you, keep them. And then he goes on to say that he wants them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so this being one comes out of them being protected from the world. We get concerned when we see our brothers and sisters being pulled to the world. We, we, we get concerned when people stop coming regularly to the services. 
We, we get concerned when we see someone's social media profile changing. You see, the world keeps us from God. And we as believers are united in God. And if a fellow believer is being pulled back to the world, then our unity is going to suffer because that person's affections are going to the world and not the common affection of God the Father. And one of the big concerns that we have had as pastors over this time of COVID is some of the people seemingly in, the, in, the, in, in church life have drawn closer. And then some people, it seems, have drifted further apart. And sometimes when you've seen someone who is in, in a backslidden situation, you can look over their social media profile and you can see what's happened in slow motion almost. You, you can look back at a time when what they posted was about things of God. Maybe a text. Maybe the music they were listening to was worship music. Maybe they were showing some great pictures of creation. And, and their profile was good and wholesome. And then that started dropping off. And there was other stuff, and it wasn't bad, and it wasn't sinful. But the emphasis was changing. It was moving from things of God just to trivia, a meme, a video clip, a funny thing. And then you start seeing them exposing more and more of their own skin. Laughing at things that shouldn't be laughed at. And the music's changed from worship to soft rock to hardcore gangster rap. And the world has pulled them away. And it breaks unity. Going after the things of the world breaks unity first and foremostly with God the Father. But it also breaks unity with God's people. And that's why as God's people, when we see people going off, when we see people being drawn away, it concerns us. And brothers and sisters, you have a responsibility to pray for the unity of the church. But when you see the unity of the church being broken by someone being pulled by, by the world, you shouldn't leave them to be pulled. We should be pleading to God and we're right and proper, getting alongside them and encouraging them back in the paths of righteousness, not to let them go away with the world. If the church building was open next Sunday, and as many people could come as wanted, there was no restrictions, would we be as full as before the pandemic? My fear is we wouldn't. 
because my fear is there are people who are drifting. And those of us that are hanging on because God is hanging on to us, we need to hang on to those who are drifting and pray for them and see them restored. And maybe right now you are now realizing that you are someone who is just getting pulled away. Or maybe you don't see it yet. How about you just review your social media content? How about you just review your internet browsing history? How about you just sit down and ask yourself, what have you been praying for? Because that will show you what's most important to you. But what we can thank God for, friends, is this. It's 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And by default, he prayed for us. And he said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Amen. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' prayer. We thank you for the many parts of this prayer that we can take as our own. Oh Lord God, this world is harsh and difficult and nasty about us. Keep us from the world and keep us from the evil one. We plead with you because we can't do it ourselves. And Heavenly Father, as we see the unity of the church under attack and we see the unity under attack by the, 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 the lusts of this world, we plead with you, O oh Lord God, that you would answer Christ's prayer and that you would keep us in unity as your people so that your name may be honoured and glorified. In Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen.